Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. On August 9, 2015, the local group Alianza Indígena Sin Fronteras celebrated 18 years of promoting respect for indigenous peoples by hosting an event in honor of the United Nations International Day of the World's Indigenous Peoples. Up first, Executive Director Jose Matus talks about the origin of the Indigenous Alliance Without Borders. He is a Yaqui ceremonial elder and leader of the Yaqui community of the city of South Tucson's Barrio Libre. In 1997, the Indigenous Alliance Without Borders came together as a result of persistent law enforcement abuse against Indigenous peoples living in the southern United States and Mexico border region. The United Nations started back in 1987 at the San Diego District Territory of the Panama Nation. And the project was to start and organize to deal with border indigenous issues. There were some of us who were having problems crossing the border. There were other tribes who were trying to bring their relatives or people trying to cross for uh, services. So we felt at that time that we needed a project, a community organization that would deal with those issues. They would go after the border patrol if and when they mistreated the indigenous person in the land. Uh, I, for one, have been mistreated. I, for one, have been detained at the border. But yet, I was able to deal with them effectively. So, yes, we needed something that the United States to deal with those issues. Uh, and we have done that. Uh, when we started the project, the uh, Department of Justice called us up and said, okay, what are your concerns? What's going on in the riots in El Paso and San Diego? And so we told them, and then the Department of Justice and uh, Immigration at that time uh, decided to put together some guidelines for southern border tribes coming through. Uh, it was okay, but then again, we did, I thought we needed a lot of work. There still needed some stuff to, to, to go in there, but nevertheless, uh, many people were working on by the Department of, of Justice and the uh, Department of Immigration. And it was basically our goal to get them to notice it, who we were, who we are, and what we're trying to do. So, anyway, the word here. And thank you for coming. Um, but first of all, we uh, asked Ikemata Ikeola, our grandfather, to, to give us a blessing. We are giving a good matter. Our heart is close to our hearts. That we, uh, our tongues, be like a pen of, of a writer that we can speak loudly and clearly and learn from each other. And so the first speaker that I asked to come and talk to us is 
an individual from the University of Arizona, a good friend, good supporter of indigenous issues and projects. His name is Professor Dean Tanaya, and he's going to talk to us basically uh, human rights, and he should be the United Nations Director of Indigenous Human Rights. And I asked him to share some of his findings and concerns they saw, they heard of during his trips all over the world to visit indigenous communities all over the world. So for the games tonight, he's here we can okay. That was Executive Director of the Alianza Indígena Sin Fronteras, Jose Matus, on the 18th anniversary of their group's founding. Up next, in honor of the United Nations International Day of the World's Indigenous Peoples, is James Anaya. He is a Regents Professor and the James J. Lenoir Professor of Human Rights, Law, and Policy at the University of Arizona James E. Rogers College of Law where he teaches and writes in the area of international human rights, constitutional law, and issues concerning indigenous peoples. He's also the former United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you, Jose. And congratulations to the Alianza for 18 years of excellent and very important work. Uh, for the indigenous peoples of this part of the world, and for also being an inspiration, I think, to indigenous peoples and activists in other parts of the world who know about the important work of the Alianza, uh, an inspiration for indigenous peoples around the world as well as for the youth uh, who are um, who, who, who look to Alianza, I think, as a model for, for moving forward and proposing solutions and raising awareness about important issues. Uh, Today is, is, in addition to being a day to celebrate the 18th anniversary of the Alianza, is, as we all know, is the, the International Day of the World's Indigenous Peoples. Uh, it was, the, of course, it, it now is something that we all appropriate, but the initial naming of today as the International Day of the World's Indigenous Peoples was by the United Nations about 10 years ago. And the, U, the UN picks today uh, because today marks the first day uh, of the first meeting of the United Nations Working Group on Indigenous Populations. Now, the Working Group, as many of you may know, uh, was the first institution uh, throughout the UN system focused specifically on Indigenous people's concerns. Now, the UN didn't just create this out of its own goodwill. It was a result of indigenous people's own demands, indigenous people's going to the UN and claiming rights when they had seen those rights repeatedly violated for decades, indeed centuries, at home. So this is an effort by indigenous peoples from Arizona, from this part of the, the country, uh, from Canada, from Mexico, Central America, South America, and increasingly from Asia, Africa, to call attention to their common concerns that, that have to do with basic human rights, the basic right to live, the right to maintain a 
a sense of dignity in oneself and one's family and one's community, the right to maintain culture, the right to govern your own community according to traditions and aspirations of the community, the rights, lands, and resources. These were the demands that indigenous peoples were making in an environment in which they were finding, they were experiencing these rights being violated at home. And so the working group was established in response to these demands being made by indigenous peoples themselves going to the United Nations, particularly in Geneva, crossing the ocean any way they could, uh, typically by plane, of course, but finding the means to go over there, stay there in that expensive city, in order to make the case that their basic human rights were being violated, had been violated over centuries, that the historical deprivation and oppression that they had suffered continued to rear its head today in multiple ways, resulting in oppressive conditions for them. And that these issues that we are raising were matters of basic human rights. And the whole community heard, and like I said, we want to establish this institution. They'll call the Working Group on Indigenous Populations within the U.S. system to address those concerns. Now, interestingly, the Working Group was established at the, at the lowest rung of hierarchy of the U.N. system. Of course, we have the U.N. General Assembly, then we have various functional commissions, and then we have subcommissions, then within those commissions we have working groups, and this is one of those working groups that, again, at the very lowest level of U.N. organization. But because it was at that level, the working group had flexibility. It was made formally of five members, experts, not government representatives, but appointed experts, appointed experts. And they had flexibility in the way that they could organize their meetings. And one of the things they did was open the door for their meeting, open up the door to their meeting, so that indigenous people from whatever description, uh, without the permission of their government, without even the support of the government, or any kind of uh, support from any organization could attend those meetings. And it was because of that attendance by indigenous people that we started to see the working group really make a difference in terms of the discussions going on at the international level. Indigenous people had a voice, and that voice was resonating within the UN system. Now, one of the tasks of the working group was to develop a declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples, was to take these stories indigenous peoples had and the rights that they were asserting and put those down into a declaration that eventually the countries, hopefully, would agree to. And so the working group, at its very first meeting, started that discussion about what would go into a declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples. So indigenous people were able to tell their stories about what was happening, their experiences, and the oppression that they had suffered historically and would continue to suffer but also look to the future and say, what are the rights we have that should be respected? What are the rights that we have that should be the basis for a dignified existence into the future? And so that exercise fed into the drafting of this instrument, the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Now, in the 80s, at those meetings, there was a sense that this was going to happen quickly, but it didn't. It took time. It wasn't until 2007 that this Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples was ultimately adopted by the UN system. 25 years, basically, it took for that instrument from its beginnings, the working group on indigenous populations, from the drafting of the initial text, to the discussions of the hierarchy of the UN system, 
to finally the vote at the UN General Assembly. It took 20 years for that vote to take place and for it to affirm the Declaration of Rights of Women's People. But during that 25-year period, we saw a shift in world attitudes for indigenous peoples. Even well-meaning governments, or those who express good intentions in the name of human rights, really had it wrong at the beginning. They were saying, oh, all indigenous peoples need to do is assimilate. They can have rights just like everybody else. They don't need to speak their own languages. They don't have to have their own education system. Why are they so obsessed with lands and resources? They can just move to the cities and live like everybody else. That reminds us of something like the policies that were going on in this country in the middle, middle part of the century. That was what human rights meant to much of the world. But indigenous peoples painted a very different picture, one in which indigenous peoples would retain that cultural identity, would retain that relationship with lands, historical, with traditional lands and resources, would retain their own forms of self-government as a matter of basic human rights. And that vision, that alternative vision of cultural identity, integrity, and indigenous self-determination made its way into the Declaration. We saw a shift in global attitudes. It took time, but that shift did come. So the Declaration affirms the rights of indigenous peoples as peoples. Now, I have a copy of the Declaration here with me. And I, for those of you who haven't seen it, I encourage you to, to get a copy of it and, and, and read it because it's an inspirational document. It's a document that paints an alternative future to the one that indigenous peoples historically uh, have experienced. And it's a document that represents, at a, at a significant level, the consensus of the world community about what the rights of indigenous peoples are. Remember, this was approved by the UN General Assembly with the vote of the overwhelming number of, uh, uh, of, of member states of the United Nations. The U.S. initially voted against it, but under President Obama, the U.S. reversed course and declared support for it. So we can say it's a consensus document representing not just the aspirations of indigenous people who advocate for this document, but also representing what countries, what the governments of the world have, have accepted. Now, I'm just going to read a few of its passages, because I think it's important on this day, the day of indigenous people, to reflect on some of the very important parts of this, of this important instrument. Now, toward the beginning of the, of the document, it sets the basic tone of equality and self-determination, basic themes that we see running throughout the instrument. Article 2 says, indigenous peoples and individuals are free and equal to all other peoples and individuals and have the right to be free from any kind of discrimination in the exercise of their rights. In particular, that based on their indigenous origin or identity. The right to be free and equal. A declaration that established, that, that, that affirmed that basic equality of indigenous peoples and individuals with the rest of humanity. Then very importantly, in Article 3, self-determination is affirmed. Indigenous peoples have the right to self-determination. By virtue of that right, they freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social, and cultural development. Self-determination. Quite remarkable. Quite remarkable. Governments have fought hard, many fought hard against that, including that, that article in the Declaration, saying, oh, that would be the dismemberment of countries. But it rather than mean that this government company is that a country, it, 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 it establishes a basis by which humanity can be respectful of all segments of the societies, including indigenous peoples, and their ability to determine their own destinies. Culture and religion, important themes also we find in the Declaration. Article 11 says, indigenous peoples have the right to practice and revitalize their cultural traditions and customs. 
This includes the right to maintain, protect, and develop the past, present, and future manifestations of their cultures, such as archaeological and historical sites, artifacts, design, ceremonies, technologies, and visual and performance arts and literature. Then Article 12 makes specific reference to spiritual and cultural traditions, and spiritual and, and religious traditions. Indigenous peoples have a right to manifest practices and develop, teach their spiritual and religious traditions, customs, and ceremonies. The right to maintain, protect, and have access in, in privacy to the religious and cultural sites. These articles written very close to home, I think, when we think about the kind of issues that indigenous peoples are, are confronted with today, and that, 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 that still come in the form of, of problems. These issues arise, arise in the context of, of, of often conflict. Um, Article 15. States shall take effective number, me measures in consultation and cooperation with indigenous peoples concerned to combat prejudice and eliminate discrimination and promote tolerance, understanding, and good relations among indigenous peoples in all other segments of society. The Declaration is calling upon states to take specific measures to eradicate that historical discrimination that continues in the lives of indigenous peoples in many cases in many parts of the world. And then particular focus on indigenous women and children. Article 22 says, particular attention shall be paid to the rights and special needs of indigenous elders, women, youth, children, and persons with disabilities in the implementation of the Declaration. So, attention to those particular concerns of particularly vulnerable segments of society and indigenous society and women. Provisions on lands and resources included in the Declaration, including a recognition of the spiritual and cultural uh, aspects of the of, of, Indigenous people's relations to lands and resources. Article 25 says, Indigenous peoples have the right to maintain and strengthen their distinctive spiritual relationships with their traditionally owned or otherwise occupied and used lands, territories, laws. The treaties, treaties are mentioned in the Declaration, the importance of maintaining respect for historical, historical treaties. Article 37, Indigenous peoples have the right to the recognition, observance, and enforcement of treaties, arrangements, and other agreements and other constructive arrangements concluded with states or the successors, and to have states honor and respect such treaties, agreements, and other constructive arrangements. These are just a few of the provisions of the Declaration, but I wanted to read those to give you a flavor of what this document says, and again, encourage you to, to take a look at it. It's readily available on the internet, those of you access to, to the internet. Um, you just Google your Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, uh, and you'll find it. Uh, you can write the the, the UN Permanent Foreign Secretariat will send you uh, as many copies as, as you want and a really nice uh, little booklet. Really nice, it's inspirational words, but what is the reality we have today? Now we have gone from a time when these rights were not recognized a lot. We have gone a time when these rights were, were debated and even uh, rejected on a global scale. They continue to be debated, but at the global scale, at least, we see a significant level of acceptance as represented in the Declaration on the rights of these people. But we're at a place where these rights are more honored in the breach that they are in the respect and implementation of them. In other words, the implementation of these rights, seeing them lived by people, See, see them in everyday life, is still a ways off. This is 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson.
in honor of the United Nations International Day of the World's Indigenous Peoples, you are listening to James and Naya, a Regents Professor and the James J. Lenoir Professor of Human Rights Law and Policy at the University of Arizona James E. Rogers College of Law. Well, so mentioned that I served as the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. That was a position I had for six years. Basically, the position was to receive information from Indigenous peoples, particularly about the difficult conditions they face, and try to advocate for them before the governments and before the UN system, to investigate those situations and report on them. Uh, and so, I, in addition to receiving written information on a daily basis, I traveled to many countries throughout the world to actually study those situations, examine those situations. Now, I took a position in 2008 that was just a year after the Declaration had been adopted. And so the Declaration represented a blueprint for what should be the case for indigenous peoples, what should be the conditions. But I didn't find that blueprint followed on the ground in many places. Within. Instead, I found these rights being infringed upon. I found that they sit there exercising the everyday lives of people still far off. In Peru, I looked at a situation where indigenous people were protesting in defense of their rights. They were finding that logging companies were coming in. They were experiencing logging companies coming to their territories. The government granting away concessions for mining in their territories. And so they, 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 they engaged in acts of protest, out of frustration, out of necessity. They blocked the road. And after a few weeks, the government called on the troops and literally started shooting. And that resulted in, in a number of deaths. Deaths related to the defense of indigenous people's rights. In Guatemala, I looked at a situation where there was a mine being built that continues to be developed on indigenous lands, causing contamination to the water, and causing illnesses for, for, for many people from that contamination. Breeding conflict among community members because some were offered jobs while others were left to simply suffer the negative consequences of that mining. And those conflicts have involved, have involved, and continue to involve an act of violence. In Canada, I heard from indigenous women who were suffering violence of all kinds at a rate much, much higher than non-indigenous women, much like is the case for indigenous women in this country. Why is it that indigenous women suffer rates of violence four or five times higher than those of non-indigenous women? What's wrong with the justice system? What's wrong with the social system? I heard from others who talked about, uh, in, in a number of countries, the U.S., uh, in, in, uh, in Bolivia, I remember, in, in Colombia, others who talked about the increasing rates of loss of language, how they struggle to maintain the indigenous language that they grew up with, that their forebears taught them. But that, that language, because of the pressures of all kinds of different parts of society, has been increasingly lost. Uh, these are the kinds of issues that I confronted and saw throughout, throughout the world and that heard about on a day-to-day basis as I was a special rapporteur, um, which highlight this implementation gap, this gap between the rights that have been affirmed in this document, the rights of governments that said, yes, we agree with these rights. The gap between that and what is happening on the ground. Why is it we have this gap? Why is it that the world community, why is the government in, have, have, have formally subscribed to these rights that we see conditions persist by the indigenous people's separate violations of these very rights? 
Well, we can analyze this for some time. But let me just mention a couple of factors. One has to do with political and economic forces that are adverse to these rights. Political and economic forces that seek to gain at the expense of indigenous people's resources, for example, at the expense of indigenous people's uh, own relationship with their lands and resources. Here in Arizona, we find a mining project being developed on a sacred site of the Apache people, the whole class. Why, why is that happening? Why is the value of that land, the cultural and spiritual value of that land, less than the economic value of that land? And who's calling the shots there? Who's calling the shots? It's the powerful forces of all of us. The San Francisco Peaks is another example of where we see economic forces overshadowing and over, overtaking the concerns about the sacred character of the peaks, the sacredness of the San Francisco Peaks and other Arizona too a number of tribes uh, in, 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 the, in the region. So, so political and economic forces are at play that, that, uh, that, that, that will have to be confronted and that will have to be overcome. And underlying that, I think, is the, is the major reason. A lack of social consciousness that includes awareness about indigenous people's realities and their lives by the larger population. We look beyond this room, beyond our business communities, beyond our friends, our families. What do people know about native people? Really, what do they know? I, I, I teach at the University of Arizona. And I look at my classes, I look at my colleagues, and I hear ignorance constantly about the native people around them and about the conditions of native people. Now, that reflects how benign that ignorance, it still reflects a condition that unless it changes, we, we're not going to see the kind of resolve that's needed to defeat those political and economic forces that are adverse to indigenous people's rights. We're not going to see the kind of resolve in our politicians, in our political class, that's needed to see these rights fully exercised. So what's needed, I think, is, is a, a Cross-cultural, intercultural awareness raises the kind that Alianza has been involved in, the lives that many of you have been involved in, but that really reaches out much more than we are reaching out now. I know that many of us do that. When we try, we try to reach out. But until the larger political establishment, the larger educational system is so engaged in middle aware of the institutions, we're going to continue to see this resistance and the change that is required to see this implementation gap closed and to see these rights fully exercised in the lives of people. So what, what I want to encourage everybody here to do, and what I, I, I challenge myself to do, is find ways in which I can educate in a friendly, loving way, non-indigenous people, the political class, the social, larger social class, uh, about the conditions of indigenous people, about the conditions of indigenous communities, both the good and the challenging. And so that we have a society that thinks of indigenous people other than in terms of the old John Wayne movies, other than in terms of the emblem for the Washington Redskins and so forth, that sees indigenous people as living parts of the larger social fabric of the country, and that understands these rights in terms of these communities that are living for us.
of the country. Now, I, for one, am optimistic that that can happen. Uh, it has to happen. And all of us who are activists have shared that optimism, otherwise we wouldn't do what we do, right? And, and, and so I want to leave us, leave you with, with I'm not leave, but like, my, my, my closing remarks, I want to, I want to, I want to emphasize the need to focus in, on that optimism as we move forward to meet these challenges. Uh, to, to highlight what has been accomplished. This is a tremendous accomplishment, the Declaration. It represents a trend, an historical trend. Sure, there's a long way to go, but if we see what has been accomplished by the Declaration, we can see that further progress can be made. And so I'd like to highlight that optimism. That was highlighted to me when I began my tenure as UN Special Rapporteur by a good friend and a very well known respected elder, Honorary uh, Chief Orrin Lyons, who many of you may know. He came up to me after my first appearance at the, at the UN and I uh, first uh, gave, a, gave a presentation and he, and he said, uh, he looked at me, first of all, initially his head shaking, saying, you know, there's a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of work to do as a repertoire. We all have a lot of work to do. And he says, and then, then he looked at me certainly and says, but keep in mind, and don't forget, the wind is on our backs. Are you looking at the wind is on our backs? And so as we celebrate the 18th anniversary of the Alianza and move forward to another 18 years plus, and we celebrate this International Day of the Lords of Indigenous Peoples, let's just all remember that the wind is on our backs. Thank you. That was James Anaya, Regents Professor, and the James Jane Lenoir Professor of Human Rights, Law, and Policy at the University of Arizona, James E. Rogers College of Law, where he teaches and writes in the areas of international human rights, constitutional law, and issues concerning indigenous peoples. He is also the former United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. He was speaking at an event on August 9, 2015, in honor of the 18th anniversary of the Indigenous Alliance Without Borders, as well as the United Nations International Day of the World's Indigenous Peoples. This is part one of a multi-part series. You've been listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Shocker.